The scripture today is in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. That's Matthew 2, 1 through 12. In the Pew Bible, it's in page 807. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw him, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Jen, for reading the scriptures for us. I would welcome you today, and uh, let me say a prayer for us. Father, we now ask that what we uh, know not, you would please teach us. What we have not, you would please grant us. And what we are not, you would please make us. For your glory and our good, we ask these things. Amen. Undoubtedly, at some point during the month of December, uh, you heard uh, Bing Crosby sing the 12 days of Christmas. The first day of Christmas, my true love, that one right there. Um, it's not only a classic Christmas tune, but the title of it, The 12 Days of Christmas, also picks up on something uh, very Christian and uh, rather liturgical. As the festive Christmas season is celebrated by many Christians, not just, between, not just on December 24th and 25th, but for many, and probably some of you, depending on your background, from December 25th up through January 6th. These 12 days, of course, are called Epiphany, as they mark the time span between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi. Technically speaking, on the church calendar, Epiphany concluded on Friday of this past week, but it's become common practice among uh, Christians and churches to celebrate it on the Sunday nearest to the date of January 6th, which just happens to be today. 
And given that we spent the month of December in the first chapter of Matthew looking at the family, of tree, the family tree of Jesus and his royal family, it just made sense in my mind to sequentially uh, pick things up uh, here in chapter 2 and just follow along in the storyline with the arrival of the Magi here on Epiphany Sunday. I'll say more about this in, in a moment, but the wise men who visit uh, the Christ child, uh, they don't show up on the night of his birth. Or for that matter, conveniently and cleanly 12 days later. Uh, instead, it's, it's weeks, uh, months, some even project it could have been as much as a year later since when Jesus first let out his uh, initial baby cry. If you'll uh, keep that in mind, uh, you could say that uh, these wise men actually missed out on Christmas Day. And I couldn't help uh, but think that there may be some of you who find solace in this. Uh, you were one of the poor souls who booked a flight on Southwest this past December, and you too missed out on Christmas Day. Well, if that's you, here are the Magi. They're nodding with you. They understand these things. Even more than that, the, the, the Magi, they, they play an important role in the telling of things. Uh, as what they do, it's, it's interesting, uh, but it really, it's also uh, incredible. These foreigners who come from a, a faraway land, who pay the cost on their own for their travel expenses in order to pay homage in the home of an obscure Jewish family. And when they show up, they give these uh, great gifts of great value to a little child who they recognized as a king. The, the mysterious magi, they're interesting. Uh, what they do is in, incredible, the lengths to which they go. And, and I think when they actually show up in the home of Jesus, they do something that's actually wonderfully instructive for us as they posture themselves uh, toward Jesus with, with gladness, and they give him their gifts. In this simple little way, they're modeling for us how to come to Jesus, which is to bow before our God who, who could love us so much. I know that's not a novel thought or new for most of us who are here today, but I was just thinking about how uh, the droll of the first week of January can just hang so heavy on us. And I said, well, maybe just the simplicity of what we see these wise men do will be something that God uses in our hearts to, to stir us afresh. Because maybe uh, you feel yourself to be a bit uh, down and dull as you're here today. You're just worn out from the past two weeks. Or maybe it's, it's broader than that. You're just in a season of life. It's laborious. It's uh, predictable. Perhaps uh, you're one of those in this season of the year. It's just hard. There's not as much sun. There's way too much gray. You, you just feel uh, down a bit. Maybe uh, your, your soul is cool uh, to the things of Christ. Uh, you've been uh, distant from him. There's hidden sin and uh, idolatry in your heart that's unconfessed and it's, it's robbing you of joy. If any of those reasons, or for whatever reasons, you, you feel yourself to be uh, spiritually dull and distant, but, but really wanting for there to be warmth and liveliness, uh, then the best that you're able to do, uh, just put yourself into the, the sandals of the wise men today. Uh, come alongside them in your mind and in your heart as they kneel before the baby king, overcome with joy by all that he is. I really mean that. E even in the very moment of this service, ask the Spirit of God to help you see these things in a fresh way, to, to rescue you from familiarity, to, to warm your heart. Come along uh, with these wise men as they seek out the Lord Jesus the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of life, 
begotten, not made, by whom all things were made, who came for us in our salvation, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. In thinking about Mary and the telling of Jesus' birth, it's, it's interesting to recognize that Matthew approaches the scene uh, from a different angle than his counterpart, Luke. Uh, here in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, there are no idyllic pastures with shepherds and sheep. You've got no little angels who hover about. There's no cutesy picture of Mary holding Jesus and Joseph looking fondly over her shoulder like you might see in a Christmas card. Uh, no, it's, it's a far different approach. You've got uh, Matthew telling us that Joseph uh, nearly divorced Mary. He tells us about these uh, diabolical plans of Herod, about the awful murders of the innocents, and then how Joseph took up his family and they fled for Egypt uh, for safety. Matthew skips past most of the events that we're accustomed to seeing in the classic nativity or Christmas play. He just simply says in verse 1, let me give it to you shorthand, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then he turns the camera in the angle in which he sees fit to tell the story by saying that he was born in Bethlehem, but that he was born during the days and reign of Herod. Herod, who was a paranoid, a murderous king, he uh, just happens to hear uh, that there's supposedly this birth of a, a new king of the Jews from the lips of some wise men. And the very thought of such things becomes such a threat to him that it stirs up within him jealous anger and scheming plans and, and all of the rest. Uh, we'll, we'll say more about him in a moment, but uh, before we get to that, uh, let's just uh, walk with these wise men just a bit more. As I just put down in verses 1 and 2, quite simply, I see this as the seeking of the wise men. The seeking of the wise men. I'm sure when we think of Christmas songs, you know that they've been memorialized by another song, We Three Kings. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar. It's not a bad song, uh, but it does stretch the historical accuracy of things with its uh, creative liberties. In fact, I, I read an article this week that was titled, uh, We Three Kings of Orient Aren't. <laughs> I said, that said a lot right there. Well, what, what does it mean? Well, not, not everything in the, story, in the song is really on point. For starters, there, there may have been more than three men who traveled in search of Jesus. In fact, some of the earliest records in church history suggest that there were far more than this. So it's probable there were more than three. Uh, they also most assuredly uh, weren't kings. They were wise men. Or you might have a Bible translation that says magi. Magi just being a word that picks up on the original Greek language of the New Testament, meaning that these world travelers were like magicians or uh, astrologers. So if you like, uh, they're experts in interpreting dreams and, and omens and signs and other uh, strange happenings. Hence the title of the article, We Three Kings of Orient Aren't. They're, they're not kings. Rather, they're, they're stargazers. And they're not from uh, the, the Orient, which is a word that we don't really use uh, these days, but when it is used, it tends to make us think of Far Eastern Asia. These wise men were uh, likely from ancient Persia or Babylon, or if you like modern-day Iraq. 
So granted and given, there's, there's uncertainty as to where home was for the wise man, but uh, personally speaking, I'm, I'm inclined to think there's a good chance that they came from Babylon. Because you'll recall from our studies in Habakkuk that God's people were exiled to Babylon for a long time. And in living there as exiles, certainly they took with them the scriptures and, and their culture. There were even Hebrews like uh, Daniel who held prominent positions in the Babylonian government. So it's not a stretch to think that these wise men were influenced by Jewish thought, maybe even Jewish people, Jewish thinkers. All that to say, these, these travelers from far away, they're, they're not like casual drifters, uh, you know, 20-somethings, like uh, hitchhiking their way across Asia because it's a great thing to do. No, uh, they're, they're high-ranking officials. They've got influence and resources. I think they're well-respected in their homeland with both roles in religion and, and politics. And most specifically, they are students of the stars. As they put it in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the, the movement of the star they were following, uh, I don't know, it could have been a comet, it could have been a supernova, it could have been the alignment of two planets. You can read all about these things. There's an important study in them. It's, uh, bottom line, it's unknown to us, but it was uh, significant to them. In part, because in the ancient world, most people believed in astrology. Meaning that some new uh, astronomical event taking place made it reasonable to suppose that God, or in some cases, the gods, were breaking into the ordered world and making known some news. Which is just to say that it wasn't strange or out of place for these wise men to see the unique star and infer that impending changes were in motion. The, the political winds were shifting as a new king was stepping onto the stage of history. Additionally, uh, the star they're referencing is actually something tucked into an obscure story in the book of Numbers, chapter 24. I'll have to leave it to you to get to all the rest, but there's an important phrase in there in which uh, a guy called Balaam prophesied that in a future day, quote, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And those words of old were understood by Jews to be like a, a prophetic symbol pointing to a messianic deliverer. deliverer. And so uh, the Magi, with presumably some knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, are connecting the dots to what they've known and heard with the star event that they've witnessed. As Christian people, it's important that we understand that the Scriptures speak pretty strongly against uh, looking to the stars uh, for meaning. We aren't to fiddle about with signs and symbols. And yet... Uh, here is God doing something profound. He's meeting these seekers where they are. One author put it, God is utilizing His power over the heavenly bodies to direct them to His Son. So here in Matthew's uh, accounting of things, we don't have a condoning of astrology, but we do have God showing us that He's willing to meet those who genuinely seek Him. Uh, it made me think of a woman that I know who was, who was deeply involved in Wiccan uh, here in Lakewood. She knew herself to be lost in darkness, and over time, God met her in the darkness of even such things and, and brought her to saving faith in her son. God is near to those who seek him. 
He can use whatever means he sees fit to to get our attention Even things that are uh, seemingly coincidental Like when there's a fella back in the day who came across uh, one of Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermons A sermon that had been printed in a newspaper Spurgeon lived and preached in London, but his sermons were circulated quite broadly in papers In fact, this guy found said newspaper sitting on top of a counter at a bar in the outback of Australia He picked the thing up read it and then uh, became himself a Christian God can use whatever means he sees fit To get the attention of those who genuinely seek him Just like what he's doing with these wise men he utilizes his power over the stars to, to get them to his son. So uh, here, here they are, following the star, which gets them to the great city of Jerusalem. They show up, they do some asking around about the whereabouts of the king of the Jews, which then gets the attention of King Herod, who didn't like the sound of some other king showing up in his territory. Which brings us to verses 3 through 8 and the plotting of Herod. The plotting of Herod I'm going to spend just a little time on Herod uh, Herod's role because uh, God willing will return uh, to him next week as we as we cover the remaining portion of chapter 2 but for now the, the skinny on Herod is that he is a he's a deeply disturbed man he was power hungry paranoid he had one of his wives and a couple of his children uh, murdered so when Matthew tells us in verse 3 that he was uh, troubled when he hears about the wise men searching for Jesus, it's a very loaded term. He, he's troubled, he's disturbed, he's in turmoil. Uh, he, he may even been to some de degree terrified. He's threatened by the announcement of one who would supposedly usurp his reign. Not only is he uh, irritated and, and angsty, but, but Matthew adds in that so are many other people in Jerusalem, including some of the religious leaders. He, he's silent on the reason for their troublesome reaction. It may have something to do with indifference or uh, they felt it to be a perceived threat to their influence. I don't know. But uh, either way, uh, Herod and the religious leaders team up as he presses them about the whereabouts of the Christ's birth details. To which the religious uh, leaders reply without hesitation, Oh, well, that's easy. You, you'll find him in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet of old, Micah, said would take place. Not only that, but Bethlehem is the hometown of David, who was once a, a great shepherd. And that's what the Messiah is going to be, like a shepherd king of God's people from the family line of David. Side note, these, these citations of, of prophecy being fulfilled, you even see the way it's set apart in the scriptures before you to give us a sense of, it's, it's a quote here. Uh, this, Matthew loves to do these things. As we read through Matthew's gospel, you just find it over and over. He loves to say, this is how Jesus fulfilled what was prophesied long ago. Which actually makes the response of the religious professionals quite troubling for us to read. They tell Herod where he can find the Christ king Because they know the scriptures they can say with relative ease. Oh, yeah, Michael told us about these things 700 years earlier They know where the Christ is to be found But they themselves remain in Jerusalem Seemingly unmoved unaffected and unattached and untouched They know it all 
but it has no impact upon their lives. While the Magi know a little and eagerly seek more, the religious leaders know a lot and apathetically stay put. And I couldn't help but think that that is just a, it's a disturbing warning in this story for us who are Christian people. Because here we have the, the religious informed who can correctly answer the Bible trivia question. They, they know these things, but it has little effect upon them. Which is to say that it's, it's possible to, to know a, a little bit of this and that about Jesus and the Bible, and yet to be uh, truly unaffected by it and by him. Bishop Ryle said uh, long ago uh, that these verses teach us that there may be knowledge of Scripture in the head while there is no grace in the heart. That, that is the, the characteristic danger for, for clergy, but also for all who are longtime Christians. Our apathy can harden into outright opposition to Jesus and all that he represents. If we don't continue to be uh, repentant, sensitive to the things of God, sin and apathy will make us hard-hearted to spiritual impulses. That's a warning and a word of application to us from this story. We mustn't miss the significance of the contrast between the wise men who seek Jesus wholeheartedly, while Herod and the Jewish clergy knew far more and stood indifferent against him. It's actually more than just indifference. There's really no misunderstanding the motivation of Herod's inquiry about Jesus. He's not just like a, a spiritually interested person, a spiritual seeker. He's, he's a conniving plotter. He's hateful. He's fearful of anyone and anything that threatens his self-centeredness. As the reader, we, we know this. We kind of pick up on it. Rather ironically, uh, his dubious intentions are lost upon uh, the wise men in the moment they apparently are deceived by his honesty. So, off to Bethlehem they go with the urging of Herod for them to send him word once they find the, the little king to be. Which brings us now to verses 9 through 12 and the worshiping of Jesus. The worshiping of Jesus by the wise men from a faraway land. So it's the, the, the guidance of the star, which gets them to Jerusalem. After their conversation with Herod, the star once again begins to move uh, and guides them towards Bethlehem, which is about six miles due south of Jerusalem. And I find it, as I read it and thought about it this week, how easy it is to feel the anticipation of this long journey these guys have been on. They, they follow like the little GPS star thing, and they go, we're almost there. They're, they're filled with an overwhelming sense of joy. By the way, if they came from Babylon, which was some 800 miles away. And if they managed to travel uh, 20 miles a day, this is like a 40-day trip that they're on with no breaks. Which uh, is to, to make the point that uh, they weren't on the scene with the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. You'll notice that he isn't an, an infant when they show up. He's referred to as a, a child in verse 11. He's not in a manger or a stable. He's in a home where the royal family apparently relocated after the birth. So the wise men, they knock on the door. You know, Joseph opens up the, the thing to them, and then the narrator tells us this. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, 
gold and frankincense and myrrh. Just look at the words. They saw, they fell down, they worshiped, they gave. It's doubtful that these quasi-pagan religious men understood Jesus's uh, divine nature in full. But their actions were unknowingly and wonderfully foreshadowing of the worship of Jesus by all the Gentile nations. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that Matthew's gospel ends with something called the Great Commission, which is when the resurrected Jesus, he commissions, he sends out his followers to go to the nations of the world with the good news of all that Jesus has done. He says, no, uh, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, go to the utmost edges of the world. So this work of redemption that uh, initially started with and was focused upon the Jewish people, it rippled out to every ethnicity and nation. That's how Matthew's gospel ends. And right here at the beginning, you're getting just a little foreshadowing. of It's almost like a, a bookend that's taking place. We're seeing the earliest signs of what is to come. Jesus is for all the nations of the world. These Gentile men, made in God's image, gifted, learned, they meet the true God and his Messiah in the person of Jesus, the Savior for the whole world. Upon encountering him, they're full of gladness, and they've also come ready to, to give him gifts, expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're, they're tremendously valuable, you presume, to the rather impoverished royal family. But they're also, uh, in their own way, uh, prophetic witnesses to the identity and mission of Jesus' life to come. Here's what I mean in saying that. You know, that gold ha has always been a gift fit for a king. And these wise men bring, bring a present of gold to the child declared in the stars to be the king of the Jews. He, he wasn't made to be king, appointed to king uh, like Herod was. He was... He was born to be king of the royal line of David. A king whose arrival is framed by vulnerability rather than violence. It's the upside-down nature of how Jesus comes. He, he doesn't come wielding a sword. He's, he's essentially like wrapped in a little onesie. And the very uh, sight is just a, it's a bundle of contradictions, writes Dan Darling. He says, the young child receiving the worship of royalty, the wealthy bowing before the impoverished. Strange things. And yet this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. In that moment, the real power was not in the wealthy coffers of the rich rulers. It was not in the gilded hall of Herod's palace. It was in the infant God-man standing before them. And so they bowed in reverent, real worship giving him gold worthy of a king. The second gift of frankincense is a gift for deity, for deity. So uh, the fragrant incense was burnt in temples around the world in honor of the gods. It was also uh, burnt in the Jerusalem temple in honor of the God of Israel. It was an element associated with deity. So when you combine that together with the first gift, it makes the child before whom the Magi knelt in homage, both a king with a kingdom and the divine son of God, worthy of worship. 
The third gift is, is a costly spice called myrrh, which was used in perfumes. It was also uh, used as a burial spice sometimes for, for royalty. Which, by the way, it was Nicodemus who donated 100 pounds of myrrh to the burial event of Jesus, which was a tremendously generous gift on his part. So what's strange about this gift is that it's not simply uh, typically associated with a, a, a baby shower. It has more to do with a funeral. And while the, the gift is unexpected, it's actually something wonderfully appropriate because it speaks to the full humanity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, not only with us in birth, but also with us in death. Brian Zand, he, he, he pulls it all together in this way. He says, gold for the king of kings, frankincense for the God of gods, myrrh for Emmanuel, who will join us in death, that we might join him in resurrection. You see, all three gifts, in their own special way, bear prophetic witness to the identity and mission of Jesus' life. They show us who he is, what he came to do, and how much it will cost him. In particular, the, the gift of myrrh, given at his birth, is a foretaste of his impending death. He came to us to, to die for us. As the angels announced it back in chapter 1, Jesus came to save his people from his sins and his atonement on our behalf. This is what I mean, friends. I wonder if you can see these things afresh in Jesus' birth, the, the significance of our, already how it's pointing to his death on your behalf. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant becoming obedient to the point of death for you. He who became like the least of us, he who came running from heaven with mercy in his eyes to fulfill the law and the prophets, he who came from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. And then see him 30 years later, rising from the grave in victory over sin and death to reveal the kingdom coming to reconcile the lost to redeem the whole of creation even in his suffering he saw to the other side knowing this was our salvation jesus for our sake he died he humbled himself and became a servant to us he joins us in death that we might join him in resurrection myrrh frankincense gold generous gifts Symbolic gifts, 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 gifts. This may be the very reason why we do the exchange and have gifts, th gifts things here this Christmas season because of the part of the Magi. So they give their gifts and then they depart, having been warned in a dream not to check back in with Herod and to take an alternate route home. And so off they go. And if you look at the trip from beginning to end, it, it's quite a trip that these fellows have taken. It all begins with God uh, taking initiative toward them. He meets them in their own context, in their own interests, in their own way, and he communicates to them in a way they could understand. And then, fast forward, once these guys found Jesus, they, they spontaneously and freely worship him as the object of their religious quest. 
They give gifts that express the joy at finding someone worthy of their worship. They saw, they fell down, they worshiped, they gave. They're modeling for us how to come to Jesus each and every day, which is to bow before a God who could love us 